Okay, good afternoon everyone. Uh, I think it's the last one of this term. It is. It is, so we've reached this point. And I'm delighted uh, for uh, this session to have uh, Tom, Tom Warren from BuzzFeed with us. BuzzFeed, we talk about quite a lot. I think they are one of, if not the uh, most interesting of the kind of digital native, new digital sites. They've invested very seriously in um, public interest journalism, as I would call it, and particularly in investigative journalism. And, and uh, Tom is on the investigations team for BuzzFeed here in the UK. Uh, he started his career at The Guardian, then he went to the Bureau for Investigative Journalism. You'll remember some of you would have seen Rachel Oldroyd from Constant Bureau, runs the Bureau, was here last term. Uh, and now he, uh, what, he won the Young Journalist of the Year Award for his work at the Bureau, uh, and now he's at BuzzFeed. So he's going to talk us through what BuzzFeed does, how it works, and some examples of investigation, and uh, maybe some pointers for the future too. So Tom, you're very welcome, over to you. Thank you. I might actually stand up if that's... Uh Right, because otherwise I can't quite quite see all of you. Don't be looking at your phones while I'm talking to you. <laughs> but uh, just just so I have an idea of, of who are here. I, I know what the fellows do. Uh, the the rest of you are you journalists or ex-journalists or academics or what? How, how many of you are journalists or former journalists? Ex. Okay, so talking to a friendly crowd, <laughs> barbarians and drunkards, <laughs> like. Um, so what I wanted to do essentially was just to run through uh, what social media means for investigative journalism, what it means for investigative journalism today. Um, so you can see here, these are the three, three kind of prongs. Um, I'd ask that this initial part uh, can be on the record, I'm, you know, I'm happy to chat freely. The question and answer session that comes subsequently, if that could be off the record, because I want to be able to speak to you candidly about how we work, um, and I want to be able to answer you as honestly as possible. Um, though if you do take notes and later want to use anything, uh, I will hand out my contact details, email me, and, and if it's something that's not hypersensitive, you, you can of course use that if that's amenable to everybody. Okay? Smashing, I just don't want to get in trouble with my boss. Okay? <laughs> so, what I'd like to do is really, initially I'd like to cover the business model, which is, is really one of the most important things about BuzzFeed, and one of the things that people always ask. Um, we, we, we understand, we do live in an environment where many uh, legacy media organisations are, are struggling um, and that's had a knock-on effect in investigations. Um, investigative units are, are essentially, are you all familiar with the term loss leader? It's, uh, it's a product that you sell at a loss to bring people into your shop. So most investigations units are not, they don't raise capital, you know? So you have a news desk that can give you column inches every single day if you run a print organisation. You know, if I was a news editor at The Guardian, I know that every day I can come in and my various desks will bring me column inches. Whereas I have an investigations unit that might not bring me anything for three months, six months, uh, and they're burning money all the time. Um, but what we do provide for media organisations is we, we bring them prominence, uh, or at least that's part of our commercial function. Um, so I want to explain how, how that ties into our work. Then, what social media means for investigative journalism, because it has actually changed the way that we work as investigative journalists, both in terms of the way that we distribute the media that we create, but also in terms of our research. Um, and it's forever changing, you know, and that's, that's, that's very important. It's, it's a core element of our work now, is using social media, in fact, to find, uh, to find stories or to help us tell our stories. And then finally, the dark side of the web. Um, 
fake news is intrinsically linked to social media. Um, and where we're trying to tell the truth, uh, not everybody has that same, um, same imperative. You know, there, there's, there's a financial incentive to, to lie online. So I wanted to discuss that very briefly, just, just to go on to it. Um, and if any of you have any burning questions, or if I say anything that's like unbelievably stupid, then just nod at me and, and, and we will come to that, but there'll be plenty of time for, for questions after. Um, so first of all, I want to cover what it is that BuzzFeed uh, is famous for, really, which is <laughs> two things, and they're all condensed in here. This is the, uh, this is the true synthesis the inherent heart of BuzzFeed, which is uh, kind of lists and cats. Okay, that's, that's what we've become famous for. But in fact, it's far from the reality of us as an organisation. Okay, we are famous for our entertainment content, and it's a really important part of what we do. It helps uh, in many ways. It's, it's the financial engine of the company, and it brings people a lot of pleasure as well. There's no shame in that. Uh, I, I work on hard news. Uh, you know, my job is public interest investigations. I'm perfectly happy to work for a company that creates content that brings people a little bit of pleasure, you know, a little bit of joy. BuzzFeed is similar to the BBC or ITV. Every time you switch on Panorama, well, I mean, actually, let's take the license fee out of it. Every time you switch on... Dispatches. Dispatches, or tonight, the ITV uh, investigative stream, that is paid for by entertainment content. Every time that you watch an entertainment program on Channel 4, that advertising, it raises capital, and that capital is redirected to dispatches. Okay, so it's a cross-subsidy model. So BuzzFeed really operates from that model. Okay, so these are in, they are an inherent part of what we do, but they're not the full story. Okay, we're divided into several divisions, one in LA that does film, BuzzFeed Motion Pictures. Uh, we're branching out into longer-form video documentary. We have our buzz team, which does, you know, cats and entertaining lists. We also have uh, Tasty, which does recipes, and is big on social media. And then we have the division that I work for, BuzzFeed News, okay? So, this is what we really do. This is what my team does, okay? There are four of us in the UK, and we are solely directed towards public interest investigations, all right? That's full-time work on investigative projects. And... Uh, in newsrooms, frequently, as many of you will know, uh, certainly if you have a print background, there are different timescales for investigations. And sometimes you'll hear people talking about kind of mid-length to, to kind of full-length investigations. You might get an investigative journalist. How many of you have worked in investigations just out of interest? Okay, so I've got a few of you who will understand this timescale. In a print organisation, you might have a very skilled investigative journalist who works uh, for the Sunday papers and he'll come in normally on a Tuesday and he'll, he or she will take a run for a story you know to, to bring it out on a Sunday then you'll get somebody who might work for two or three you know two or three weeks on investigation um, but then you get the really deep dives and these stories can take three months six months a year um, in, in the making you know there's a variety of time scales we tend to work on the longer time scales we don't get drawn into the news cycle um, we're, we're kind of can you see all that there you're right mm. Um, so this is one example of what we do. Uh, we're geared towards uh, stories that create impact, and this was our last major project. Uh, we received a very large um, leak of files from RBS, and essentially it allowed us to show the way that a unit of the Royal Bank of Scotland 
uh, called GRG, which dealt with debt, had been essentially, uh, I'm going to use the phrasing that we used in the story because I need to be careful how I phrase it, but essentially uh, they'd drained businesses that they'd lent money to, they'd drained them of cash so that they could seize their assets. And this had been done in a systemic way. Um, and we were able to reveal that. We had emails from inside the bank, we had their own policy documents, um, we had an extensive amount of material. And that had impact. We published this with the BBC. So we worked on it for a number of months, I think maybe six months of my life on, on this story with, with my team, with my colleagues. And afterwards, it forced the release of a regulatory report that had been delayed for three years. Um, uh, the bank was reported to the serious fraud office by MPs. Uh, we got headlines around the world, which is very nice. We're, we're a new media company. For us, being re-reported by others is, uh, is a sign that we're doing things right. Um, and for the first time, RBS admitted that it failed its customers. In fact, it's due to the new compensation scheme. And this story is still rolling on, okay, as a result of some of the work that we published there. Um, and that was done. This is actually my team. You can see this is my editor, Heidi, um, who was going to show. Unfortunately, she couldn't be here today, so you're, you're stuck with me. Uh, she was the deputy editor of Insight at the Sunday Times where she worked on, do you know the FIFA files about FIFA corruption? She worked on that. Uh, Jane, who was at Panorama at the BBC for a long time. Richard, who came on as our editorial assistant and now is a, is a reporter on his own right. Okay. But this is just one of several stories that we've done over the last year, some of which you might recognise. Um, one of the benefits of working at BuzzFeed is we have a start-up culture. Many of you will know what it feels like to be in a newsroom when you say to your editors, we can do this, let's try this story this way, and your editor looks at you and goes, we've never done it that way before. Why would we do it that way? We're not going to do it. Or you say, I think I've got an inkling for a story, and they say, I don't fancy it. BuzzFeed is very different. It has a start-up culture where you kind of, uh, you're encouraged to bring things to the table. So as a reporter, the culture is very much, what can you bring in? So that's allowed us really to take a run at loads of interesting projects because most of you will know you have hundreds of stories sitting in your filing cabinets that you've never quite been able to write. You know, maybe you pitch them to different editors or different news organisations. At BuzzFeed, we've kind of been able to open our filing cabinets and go, I've got this, I've got that. And the company just says, yeah, OK, let's do it. Um, which is a really refreshing and, and enjoyable environment to work in. Uh, so as a result of that, did any of you see the tennis racket? Earlier this year, okay, so that was done by Heidi and my colleague John Templon, um, where they got the mixed uh, traditional shoe leather reporting, where they went to corruption specialists who oversaw corruption in, t in tennis and, and kind of got material from them, and also a really intelligent data analysis of gambling fluctuations in tennis matches. You could essentially isolate where there was potential, uh, potential corruption. Uh, we did a large story. And these have all had impact. This is the thing I want to stress to you. I mean, this one, uh, I mean, it's been raised in several parliaments. It's beginning to change the way they manage the corruption in, in tennis. Uh, you know, it's also, I think it's moving through the House of Commons at the moment. Uh, prison corruption in the UK. This one was also brought up in, um, in, uh, in the UK House of Parliament. I think that one ran on the state programme. We did a story about... Um, how many of you are familiar with, uh, they were called the Beatles, it was four British jihadis uh, who, who were in Syria, they tortured and beheaded a lot of people, you know, names you'd be familiar with, people like James Foley, you know, journalists. Um, we identified two of the four, two to three of the four, and um, we worked with the Washington Post on that. Social media being a large part of that. 
because it helps you find people, which we'll go into in more detail later. Um, that one splashed in about five or six newspapers. Um, this was an FOI story that I did, so we're doing kind of a lot of FOI stuff. Um, this was a policing story about uh, Britain's equivalent of the FBI doing illegal raids for the last decade, hundreds of illegal raids. Uh, and we also revealed, we did a surveillance story. So we followed around, there's a big phone company called Leica Mobile, and uh, it moves its money in a very unusual manner by giving it to men in cars who drive it around to post offices and deposit it. So we got ourselves a load of silly disguises and cars, and we followed around their money men around East London, uh, which is my, actually my part of East London, so I knew the roads quite comfortably there. And um, that led to a big police probe in France. So there's actually law enforcement activity off the back of it. So what I'm hoping to stress here is that even though we do the entertainment content, which we love, our investigations are no different to the imperative of investigations at The Guardian, or at The Daily Mail, or at the BBC, or Channel 4, or The New York Times. We're looking for impact. We want to do public interest stories that have impact, be it political or social, okay? And, and hopefully, I like to think that we're doing that um, at the moment. I'm, you know, we're, we're all really proud of the stuff we're working on. Um, and social plays a part of that. Because this is, I mean, this is, can you all, I don't know if you can all see this. We have a younger audience uh, than most media organisations, okay? So, and it's, that's shared with uh, other organisations that are marketplace, such as Vice. You know? the, 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 the consumers of new media tend to be younger, you know? mostly because they're consuming their media on this. Um, you, know, they, you know, you like Vice on Facebook, and all of a sudden you're looking through your friend's posts, and there's a story about jihadis in Syria or uh, refugees in southern Italy. You know, and BuzzFeed tries to, uh, to capitalise on that. You know, so we do things, uh, uh, we produce videos, right? We, we produce a lot of multimedia content. I mean, this won't, won't come as a shock to anybody who works in the newsroom or, or has worked in the newsroom over the last few years. Uh, one of my colleagues, Jane, she worked at the BBC and Panorama for a long time, and we produce a lot of videos. But they're not the same as a, a news package that you would make for a traditional broadcast news organisation. They're very emotive, three-minute videos that are subtitled in a format that most of you will have, will have seen. Have you all seen this sort of thing on Facebook? Or, or maybe not? Or yes? Or that? Yeah? Yes. Good. So essentially it's using the kind of, um, uh, what's the word, the vernacular, the vernacular of the internet. You know, it is more informal, it is more emotive to tell a news story. And that, for me, is a great pleasure. This is actually one of my greatest pleasures of working at BuzzFeed, is that we're able to tell stories to people who don't pick up newspapers. Everybody, I mean, I, I really believe this, everybody should have access to quality news media, okay? But we live in a world internationally where not everybody does. People ignore it, they don't buy a newspaper, they don't bother watching BBC News, Channel 4 News. We can do hard-hitting stories about police misconduct, about banking misconduct, and that will be read by a young person who otherwise would never come to look at these things, okay? There's value in that. And what we do is we often partner with legacy organisations. In particular, we work with the BBC so that we can get as wide a spread of people as possible looking at our stories, you know? Um, that helps impact. 
Um, it helps drive a story through the news agenda. You know, it really is it's a catalyst. You know, if you have more than one, uh, uh, you know, if you look at ICIJ or the Guardian New York Times on WikiLeaks, the more media organisations you have working on something, uh, it does act as a catalyst. It really helps you dominate the news agenda on a story. Um, so we partner, you know, to try and increase that impact, to try and increase the range of the story. Um, and within that, we also use, you know, for distribution, uh, we're on every channel, uh, you know, not just Facebook and Twitter, but also Snapchat, Tumblr. Uh, we're telling our stories in as many ways as possible. You know? And sometimes the stories, it's difficult to aggregate, but, you know, something like this video might get half a million views and then the story itself gets, I mean, don't quote me on that figure particularly for this one, but just to give you an idea, you might have half a million people watch a news video about a bank and then another 100,000 read the story and then, you know, X other number see it on Twitter. Your reach is, is really large with all of these different forms of these different uh, channels of social media working together, um, which is important. But this is the bit I wanted to stress uh, when I spoke about the internet vernacular. We use an internet-friendly tone for social media. Our news pieces themselves are written traditionally. They're written in a traditional hard news format. But also, and this is the one, I mean, it grates you, you know. I mean, uh, I go and meet all sorts of people, you know, but as, as you do as an investigative journalist. And you go into a room and people smile, they go, ah, oh, cats. But we work under the same conditions as every other investigative journalist in the UK. Uh, we're concerned about surveillance, we're concerned about state or police intrusion. Uh, we, we work on things, you know, I mean, you work on stories about jihadis, you are worried about who's watching you, you know, your, your, your personal or online security. So even though the tone might be different, the standards of the news are the same. And that's the thing I really need to, uh, need to stress to you, okay, that uh, it might look lighter. But it's no different to what journalists have been doing for the last hundred years. You know, the costs are the same, the value's the same, uh, and everything else, the glory, the drinking, the fun times, the laughing, <laughs> the cavorting. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but also I wanted to talk to you about um, how many of you use social media for investigation, actually looking for things? Many of you? And what, what, what do you use? Like, Facebook and Twitter. What about, does anybody use LinkedIn? Yes. Okay. Because one thing that I noticed in Investive Journalists, what we do, our method is very much more based on what the intelligence services do than what journalists do. Because you'll notice in journalism is if you read a lot of stories on a subject, you'll see the same mouthpiece saying something again and again and again and again. Okay? And so when you want to do a story about that subject matter, you go straight to that mouthpiece. That's actually a real mistake, because if they can tell you anything really, really useful, they've already told it to another journalist. Now, on LinkedIn, which is a form of social media, it's distribution, it's people's career histories, I want to know a copper who worked in the CID in South Yorkshire Police in 1992. Not just that, I want a homicide detective who worked in South Yorkshire Police in 1992. I can find them. I can also find the guy who managed the database for the... Home office um, computers, their homes, their investigative computers in South Yorkshire in 1992. So you can use social media to think laterally about how you find contacts with stories. Because the really useful contacts are not the apparent ones. And now all of a sudden we can find them. 
In the past, that wasn't always true. You had to use human networks. You go to person one and you say, oh, Barry, you was in South Yorkshire Police, right? I heard there were some bent coppers. Can you give me the name of a copper who might be able to help me? And they go through their Rolodex and they say, you want to speak to Jerry? Jerry will know about that. So you get on another train, you go to Jerry's house and you say, Jerry, I'm, talking, I'm looking at bent coppers in South Yorkshire Police. And he says, all right, you want to speak to Bill, but now he lives in Exeter and you need to speak to Don, but he's in Glasgow. You know, it's a really difficult job, but I can do that from my computer now with social media. People always forget, like, it's a great investigative tool. And also in the UK, and how many of you have come across whatdotheyknow.com? Several of you, it's, it's a transparency website, but it's a form of social media, okay? Because people send freedom of information requests and share the responses, and they can discuss their requests, okay? So what you've essentially got is a huge database of FOI requests that have been sent to the British government. And equivalents to this uh, website exist all over the world. You've got, uh, there's one Ask the EU, there's Muckrock in the US. So what you can do is you can search this website and you can say, I want to know about the number of autistic people who have been tasered in Wales. And any FOI requests that people have sent about autistic people being tasered in Wales will appear. So you can essentially look through each of those requests and say, you can start to ask the really granular questions. How do police record this information? Are they looking at the issue of, of, of tasering autistic, autistic people in Wales? How many autistic children have been tasered? You know, do the police receive training in how to, you know, do, do, do the guys with tasers, are they taught how to deal with autistic children? The reason I'm using this as an example is because it has actually happened where police have, have, have found people who have been suffering from autism because they don't understand what's going on. They've tasted them, okay? So this is a real-world example. This isn't a mad, mad example. And you can actually see all the requests that have been made about this on a social media website, okay? So does that help to articulate the way in which we can begin to turn social media on its head and use it as a, as a resource? Is that, does that make sense? Or, okay? So it's... Um, you know, for, for me, it's a great resource, you know? But you still have to get out. Shoe leather, shoe leather journalism still does, uh, does matter very much. Um, so I wanted to cover a little bit... More caps. Um, I, I wanted to cover a little bit fake news, OK? Um, for the sole reason that... Fake news cannot exist without social media, OK? You know, if you think about the way that... Uh, information spreads, and, and I'm sure if there are social theorists here they'll, they'll understand this in a much more refined way than I do. In the olden days, man A or woman A goes into a pub and they tell a story, and that, you know, then person B tells that self same story and he tells it to person C, and it moves around, you know, it'll go from one pub to the next, and then maybe it'll become an article of truth, maybe it won't, people will believe it or disbelieve it. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not, that information is spread, okay? Now, social media is the same thing, but on a much larger scale, okay? And where we're harnessing that to tell the truth, some people aren't, you know, which, which has become apparent, yeah? So, we need to engage with this investigative journalists, you know, I mean, all journalists need to engage with that, okay? Um, but we need, to, we need to kind of really consider uh, how to kind of combat this, because the tools and methods that we're using are used by the same people that produce fake news. 
And do all of you understand the financial uh, underpinning that drives fake news? Do you all have a, you've all got a rough idea on this. Essentially, if you can share things on, online uh, and draw people to your website, you can sell advertising. And if you sell that advertising hundreds of thousands of times, you begin to earn money. So some of the people who produce fake news, and we'll move on to this, they're literally 19-year-old kids in basements. And they realise that the more ridiculous the story they tell, the more widely it will be shared, the more money they earn. Okay? So this is why fake news is often, uh, it's often grotesque, uh, it's often a little bit sleazy, you know, it's those things that, that, that kind of draw people in and get shared. Um, and it's done for a for, for financial or political, political end, okay? Uh, but often financial. Um, but we really need to look at fake news in, in a different context, you know? I mean, because uh, uh, it is one of the, I mean, it is an existential threat to our industry. I can't stress that enough. News consumers are losing faith in what we're telling them. Uh, you know, I even have friends and family who look at me when I tell them about something we work on. Ah, you can't really believe that, like, can you? And I'm thinking, well, I can. I'm a journalist. You know, I earn my living doing this. It pays my rent. But people are starting to take that view. You know, like it really is an existential threat. But of course, we've seen it in other forms. Uh, we've got here uh, Max Seddon, who is one of my colleagues now at the FT. Right about are any of you familiar with the the, the troll factories in Russia? where people are churning out fake, fake, fake content or comments online. Okay. We also have, this was a story done by the Bureau, how the PR firm Bell Pottinger was hiring former journalists to create fake contents in Iraq that would then be distributed on social media. And this, uh, I think it's called Brigade 77. It's a British army that's been created to be social media warriors. Now, I can tell you what that means, and most of you can guess what it means. Uh, it's a crew of ex-journalists who sit down in a room working for the MOD and they make up social media stories. You know? That's as much as we understand about it now. It's a very secretive unit. So governments understand this. You know? Like it's not just kids in basements, like this is powerful, and it's powerful enough that the MOD's investing in it. Okay? It's powerful enough that the Russian state's investing in it. Okay? That's why it matters to us. Yeah? But given that scale, there are things that we can do about it. And this kind of draws us back to BuzzFeed and investigative journalism. We are what you call a digital native company, okay? So we exist online, we don't have any print products. Uh, without the internet, we wouldn't exist, okay? And so our editorial view is that we should very much report on the internet. Not simply as a platform of distribution, but it should be a subject that we should actually investigate as well. Okay, so we've done a lot of work. Our media editor, Craig Silverman, has done a lot of intelligent things where we do big data analysis of fake news. What IP address is it, is it coming from? Which companies sit behind it? And because of that, he's been able to aggregate who the biggest fake news operators are, to identify them. And some of them are literally just kids living in basements who are doing it for a financial incentive. You know? um, and also to begin and look at the data, this graph I wanted to pull out because it's, this is quite scary. Uh, if you look at the recent election cycle in the US, Facebook engagement, so social media engagement, actually sorry, overtook fake news, social media engagement, overtook mainstream, mainstream media, Facebook engagement. So you essentially have a point where more people are liking and sharing news that has been made up 
she isn't really news at all, uh, then are actually reading material from professional journalists, okay? Um, so just to give you another idea of the scale of it. Um, so as an investigative journalist, we're reporting on this. This is, uh, you know, this, this is to do with social media and investigations. We're, we're, um, uh, we're trying to find methods to, to get underneath it and to expose it for what it is, okay? And, and that kind of, um, but that being said about, about fake news, I, I would like to stress, uh, I, I mean, many of you are going to go back into newsrooms, and you know this already, so I'm, I'm kind of singing to the choir. There are a lot of growing new media companies, okay? So whilst we might hear that the, you know, the media industry is suffering and struggling, jobs are always being created within this sector. Uh, Trinity Mirror, which has sacked a lot of journalists, I think this year it hired, it was about 50 online journalists, you know, so it's, it's, a burgeoning, uh, it's a burgeoning area within journalism, okay, which, which is good news for us. Um, and social media is also an opportunity. We're engaging with audiences that otherwise wouldn't engage with us, okay, <coughs> which, which, which is a value. But also, and the most important thing that I wanted to, to really stress to you is that uh, I used to do a lot of data journalism as well. And people always think it's a new thing and that the rules of the game have changed and that all of a sudden there's this kind of magical digital journalism and it's ethereal and you need these kind of weird computer literate people to come into newsrooms and, and, and do this wonderful thing. And actually journalism has not fundamentally changed. Uh, on every data project that I've worked on, as soon as I finish the data element of it, I have to get on a train and go and knock on somebody's door. I have to send somebody a right to reply. I have to write a story, you know, which, which all of us do. Um, so that's the thing that I really wanted to leave you with is that actually, uh, not only is the future bright, but actually it's relatively unchanged. The, the essential skill set of journalists is, is the same as it ever has been. Um, and, and that's something that should uh, hopefully, uh, you know, be, bring quite a lot of pleasure to us all and, and relief for the future. So, John, thank you very much.